Dave, welcome. It's good to see you. Thanks. I'm excited to talk Jim from Maryland. <laughs> well, we're going to be doing quite a bit of it uh, in these in this next little bit of time. Um, as the listeners may remember, at the end of the last episode, I kind of set this up that today we're going to be talking about the show The Dead Played on October 12th, 1968. And in our next episode, we're going to be playing another, or we're going to be talking about another show that was recommended by Jim in Maryland when I reached out and told him that we liked his comment so much about uh, Warty Dead and the difference between worthy and worth it shows that we wanted some wrecks from this kind of primal dead era, late 60s. So he was kind enough to send us two show recommendations, and we're going to do them in chronological order so that we can talk about this show from 68, and then our next episode we can kind of see the evolution um, across the six-month span between October of 68 and April of 69. I guess we might as well just say it off the top. The next show we're going to be talking about is April 23rd, 1969 from The Ark in Boston. Uh, For today, we are talking about October 12th, 1968. All right, I have a new segment I'm going to spring on you. Let's do it. Okay, so I'm going to call this segment The Days Between. There were days, there were days, and there were days between. The basic point of this is, in the days between our two recordings, has anything Grateful Dead related or that would be of interest to the listeners happened in your life? And I'll give you an example. So the the thing that made me think of this actually was that you told me earlier this week, you were like, I found a great dead related Twitter follow that I'd like to share with you. And so I was like, man, I, I feel like the audience should benefit from this too. But also there are like dead related things that happen in my life that are probably worth sharing. So the one in this intervening period just happened to me this morning, actually. So I went to the farmer's market near my house and there was a three piece band playing a bunch of old dudes having a great time. And they sounded good. One was on a mandolin, one had an acoustic guitar and the other one had a banjo. And with that unique setup, the first thing that came to my mind was, did these guys know how to play Ripple? (laughs) And so I was in the line next to them and you know, they were playing kind of in between some of the vendors and I got my loaf of bread that I was getting and they had, it just so happened, finished playing, take me out to the ball game. (laughs) And so I went up and said, you guys sound great Threw a little money in the jar and then asked if they knew how to play Ripple. And one of the guys was like, I think I do know that one actually. And the acoustic guitar guy just start, went into it and then told the other guys what notes to play. And it sounded pretty choppy, not going to lie. And they had a good laugh and they're like, thanks. That's kind of cool of you. I went over to another place, got some honey. And when I was walking back, they were fully into ripple. They had it down mm. and it sounded great. And other people were kind of like bobbing their heads and singing along. And so we got a little bit of a, a little bit of a Grateful Dead American Beauty serenade uh, at the farmer's market today. Nice. Nothing that fun for me. Um, but in the days between, I found Jack Straw from Wichita on Twitter, which is a great follow. He's a deadhead, uh, a Yankees fan, and a dog lover like like us. I mean, that matches all the boxes. And, it, it does. Uh, it's got a beautiful silver lab puppy 
Um, so Jack Straw from Wichita. He only posts pictures of the dogs, so it's a great follow. Brightens up my day. So give that a give that a click if you're uh, on Twitter. I, I mean, it's also perfect timing because just yesterday the Dead and Company page posted a bunch of pictures of dogs wearing Grateful Dead related mm-hmm. gear and said, "Share yeah, your that. Grateful Dead dogs." All right, so should we get into it? Oh yeah. Saturday, October twelfth, nineteen sixty-eight. The Grateful Dead live at the Avalon Ballroom. What a show. I mean, it's a really good show, and it's also a really interesting one, I think, to talk about. I think the first thing that kind of stands out uh, about this show is that there are no keys. Pigpen wasn't with the band at this time. And Tom Constantin wouldn't join the touring band until the following month. So the the setup for this show is, you know, the two guitars, one bass, and two drummers. What's interesting about, I mean, not only is that interesting in and of itself, because it's a different sound than you're used to hearing from the dead in their 30 years of touring. They pretty much always have keys. But what's really interesting is it's because this is right around the time where there was the legendary or infamous moment where the dead fired or kind of fired Pigpen and Bob. So the three nights before this, October 8th, 9th, and 10th, were the first three Mickey and the Heartbeats shows that were without Bob and Pigpen, when the other four guys said, it's not fun right now. You guys aren't with us musically. Basically, you guys aren't as playing as well as we are. And so we're going to try to do something on our own and see how it works. Turns out it didn't work, and they brought Bob and Pigpen back in. But it is interesting that the three nights or three of the four nights before this, there's no Bob and no Pigpen, and they have other guest musicians that are coming out. They're kind of stretching out and playing differently. And then Pigpen didn't play this weekend of shows either, the 11th, 12th, and 13th at the Avalon. I think that there were a lot of hurt feelings. I mean, fairly. I mean, you get presumably, or it feels like you get kicked out of the band that you helped form. I can imagine being hurt by that. You know, it's been pretty well documented that Bob thought he was fired when they had that conversation. Uh, I wonder if that maybe inspired him to take things up a notch or do things a little bit differently at this show. So that was kind of the first thing that stood out to me when I listened to the show and when I looked into it at all was that it comes right on the heels of a, you know, really intense or potentially paradigm shifting moment for the band if those guys would have actually been kicked out for good we may not we may not have ever heard of the grateful dead if bob and pig pen are kicked out for good yeah it's interesting too reading about that time period of them getting of them being asked not to play with the band for a little while (laughs) what's interesting to me is the fact that part of it was that jerry and phil and and i think the drummers too but i think phil has has been he said I led the way with that I'm the one who told Jerry that they didn't sound good and they shouldn't be playing with us part of their problem was that those guys weren't like practicing enough and weren't growing with the band and it is kind of ironic that then when you look at like the last decade of Grateful Dead music it was Bob that wanted the band to practice more and was like I've got these complicated songs that I'm writing but we can never play them because no one wants to practice and that's apparently something that he really likes about Dead and Company is that those guys are locked in and willing to do the work in between isn't bob in 68 isn't bob also only like 20 or 21 isn't he like substantially younger than the other guys this show was recorded four days before bob turned 21 yeah (laughs) if i if you were gonna excuse you know i don't want to practice on 
young behavior. I think you could you could forgive him for that. And they did. They let him back in the band. Absolutely. Also, think about how crazy it is that this show was recorded when Bob was 20 and he had already been performing with a band for three years. Yeah. <laughs> like, like what? I mean, I know, I don't know if you have had a chance to watch the fantastic Beatles documentary on Disney plus yet, but that's something that jumps out to me with that is like, there's all this stuff with George being kind of, you know, sad that they're not giving him really his due. Mm -hmm. And then you have to remember he's 25 years old and has been with it. He's nine years into his career with the biggest rock band ever. These guys had lived full lives by the time they were in their mid twenties. Yeah. It's insane. And same with Bob. Like, like you're exactly right. He was 20. He can probably be forgiven for not really being super motivated to practice all the time and wanting to, you know, go have fun and enjoy being a 20 year old in San Francisco during the summer of love in 1968. So I don't know. It's interesting. The the age difference is also, you can also see it maybe in the fact that Phil was 28 at this time. And so he was more serious. He probably was in a more like professional headspace of like, look, let's get this shit down. I'm, I just learned how to play the bass two years ago or three years ago and I'm figuring it out. So what the hell, Bob? Um, but in, in any case, so I, I do think that it's interesting that this show is coming right at that period of time. Like I said, the three nights, October 8th through 10th were Mickey and the heartbeats shows without Bob and Pigpen. And after that, there were only three more heartbeats shows, um, or four, I guess there were three on Halloween weekend once in the beginning of December and then never again. It was the Grateful Dead from that point forward. So they gave that up pretty quick. Another fun fact about this show is that the next night, October 13th, had an identical set list. And this two-night run, October 12th and 13th of 1968, is the one and only time in the Grateful Dead's entire 30 years of playing shows that we know about, at least, where they had identical set lists. Not only is that a crazy stat that in 30 years and 2,400 shows, they never played the same set back-to-back nights, except for Mm -hmm. this one time. But it also has created problems for tapers because they mix up the dates kind of a lot. And so if you go onto the archive, a lot of the shows that are marked as 1013 are actually this recording from 1012, 1968. Okay, so what else was happening on this, around this time? So you brought this up, you texted me about this during the week that there was a rumor that Jimi Hendrix was in the barn for this show and he was not, but he was the next night. So on October 12th, 1968, Jimi Hendrix was finishing up a three night run at Winterland in San Francisco and Chet Helms, the man who was running the Avalon ballroom, he basically said that Hendrix reached out to him and said, hey, can you put together a jam with me and the Quicksilver Messenger Service and the Grateful Dead? Uh, Hendrix and the Dead and Quicksilver had all played at Monterey Pop. The Dead famously right after Jimi Hendrix. They were in the sandwich of Hendrix played, then the Dead played, then the Who played. Uh, Apparently, Hendrix backstage at Monterey Pop had been kind of jamming with all the San Francisco people. I don't think that the Dead were involved in that jam, according to the reports that I could read. But he just liked it so much that he was like, let's let's jam. So Chet Helms made some calls, set it up, and called Hendrix and told him to meet everyone at the ferry boat in Sausalito at 2 a.m. 
So the Dead's show ended at midnight at the Avalon, and they were all going to go basically pack up, chill out for a minute, and then go to this ferry and go out and just jam all night long. But Hendrix never showed. So he left the Dead and Quicksilver and all these people just kind of in lurch waiting at the ferry dock at 2 a.m., and they stayed there for like five hours waiting for Hendrix to show, and he never showed up. Oh, my God. So the next night, Hendrix isn't playing. His his three-night run at Winterland is over, and he goes to the Dead's show at the Avalon and goes and finds Chet Helms and says, can I jam with them on stage? And Chet's like, I mean, I don't care, but it's kind of up to them. It's their show. So he brings them backstage. This is, this is what Chet Helms says, at least. This is his story. So here's a direct quote. I brought Hendrix into the dressing room and told the Dead that Jimmy wanted to jam with them, and they're saying, great, we'll do it. The Grateful Dead go back out on stage to do their second set, and they start playing, and they keep playing. I tell Hendrix and everybody that no matter what, I'm pulling the plug at midnight. And then uh, apparently the reason was because the Avalon had a strict curfew, and so everyone knew that the the shows were going to be tight. They were going to end at midnight sharp. What happened, this is back to Chet's quote, what happened was the Dead kept telling him to wait, and they played out their set. So Hendrix never jammed with the Grateful Dead. And the bottom line is they were pissed off at him. <laughs> so a spiteful moment by the dead. Like, I don't care if you're Jimmy fucking Hendrix, man. You made us wait out all night because you were with some woman. And no, we're not letting you play with us. Wow. What could have been? Yeah. It's so hard for me to imagine Hendrix and Jerry not to mention then with Phil and Bobby and two drummers all playing together, like where there would be space for all of that. And also Jimmy's style is so different from Jerry's. I don't know. It would be really interesting. I, I, I mean, obviously I wish that that it would have happened so that we could listen to 1013 and be like, this was that time that Hendrix was playing with the dead, but that's all right. Okay. So the Avalon ballroom, like I was saying, Chet Helms um, was running it. Family Dog Productions was his company. Uh, it was operated from 1966 to 1969 in the Polk Gulch neighborhood of San Francisco, really right in the heart of the city, just north of the Tenderloin. The Dead played 29 shows there, quite a bit, a favorite location of theirs for sure around this time. The music, Some of the music that was recorded at the Avalon Ballroom was released on Live Dead, and also on two other Grateful Dead albums that I didn't know about until I was researching this show. One is called Vintage Dead, and the other is called Historic Dead. And I'm, I'm sure you've never heard of them either. The reason is because they're not quite bootleg records, but they were released under really weird circumstances. They were both record. They're you know two live albums. They were recorded in late '66 at the Avalon Ballroom, and they were produced without the dead's approval or cooperation by a label called together records. (laughs) This company had assembled a bunch of live recordings from a bunch of Bay area bands for an anthology that they were going to release about like late sixties, San Francisco music. And then the imprint just collapsed and stopped existing. (laughs) So MGM paid off their debt and assumed all of their tapes. And two of the, two of the albums that they were able to put out with all these recordings were these two random albums Vintage Dead and Historic Dead uh, that were released in 1970 and 1971, but they are long out of print, and I, I don't even know if you could find them now if you wanted to. But, I mean, that's all just to say that you have basically three records 
of Grateful Dead music that were recorded at the Avalon Ballroom. Um, according to a really good book about the dead called So Many Roads, the dead loved playing this venue because it was, quote, more free and funkier than the other San Francisco venues at the time. But because it was terribly managed, they had to find other venues, and most notably those of Bill Graham, which then led to a you know, 20 plus year relationship with Bill Graham, whose eyes you can see on the cover of In the Dark and, you know, a, a really important figure in Grateful Dead history. Basically, the, when I say this place was badly managed, apparently it was really hard for them to get paid a lot of the time when they would be here. Um, and so they would, you know, play a show and then be like, okay, pay to get settled up. And it would just be like, oh, we don't have any money <laughs> or something like that. So, uh, yeah, an interesting place. The capacity of this venue is only 500. So a small little intimate ballroom, one thirtieth the size of the Baltimore Civic Center that they were playing at the last time we were talking about the dead. So really small, intimate place. And I think you can kind of hear that in the sound of this show. Have you ever been to a concert at a place like that with a, you know, 500 person capacity or some sort of a small, small joint like that? Yeah, I saw Wolf Mother at, I think it's called the Troubadour in Philadelphia. Troubadour, it's got like a six or 700 capacity. Those venues are neat, like a little, little intimate theater that you're seeing a band play in. You would think the sound is weird in like a venue that small, but I actually think it's a little bit better. It's like tight and compact and it it works. That was the first time I ever mosh pitted <laughs> at that venue. Nice. Do you feel any more like locked in or one with the band being that small of a place um yeah and like physically you're also just closer yeah i agree there's a really good venue in new haven connecticut called toad's place that is i think probably about the same size it you might it might not even be able to fit 500 people to be honest but one of the best shows i've ever been to was there it's awesome like you said you there's less space and so even if you're in the middle of the room you're still 15 feet or 20 feet or 50 feet from the band and that's pretty cool and also with just like a little stage in because most of these venues it's not like a huge stage it's not even like a high school gym stage it's just like two feet three feet (laughs) off the ground and so it is also kind of cool that the band is more at your level It, it makes for a kind of i think a more intimate experience okay so the state of music at this time 1968 like 1977 really good year of of music. Uh, the number one song in the country this week in music history was Hey Jude. Other songs that were in the top 10 um, songs of the year included, Hey Jude was obviously number one, um, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay by Otis Redding. Oh, yeah. Other ones, uh, Sunshine of Your Love by Cream. Oh, I love that song. It's a great song. Uh, Mrs. Robinson by Simon and Garfunkel. Mm-hmm. Classic. Hello, I Love You by The Doors. And um, one of my personal favorite songs by one of my personal favorite bands, I Wish It Would Rain by The Temptations. Beautiful and very sad song. 1968, like I said, that's kind of what was going on at that point. I think we said in our last show, Sgt. Peppers came out in 67, So, and then Hey Jude, obviously, in 68. The Beatles are the biggest band in the world at this point in time. So uh, 68 is pre-Oxomoxoa. The only two albums that The Dead had released at this point were Anthem of the Sun, which was released just a few months before this show in July of 68, and their original or their debut record, depending on who you are, I think that the most common title is San Francisco's Grateful Dead. They didn't have a ton of songs to draw from, 
certainly way, way, way fewer songs than they did in 77 when we last caught up with them, when they had hundreds of songs. This show was not part of a tour, per se. The band at this point in 1968 were still largely kind of a local San Francisco or California band. You know, they had done long runs in in LA and San Francisco, but they were mostly, they weren't like the national touring act that they would soon become. You know, they were just, they were just playing so much at this point in time. When you look at their number of performances by years, the most that they played after the hiatus in 75 was 87 shows in 1980. This is how many shows they played in the late 60s. Least busy year was 1966 when they only played 115 shows. Then in 67, 143. In 68, 140. In 69, 156. And in 1970, 150 shows. Oh my gosh. Yeah, pretty much playing like every other night (laughs) at that point. Uh, In 68, in January and February, they did a short run in the Pacific Northwest and then went back to California for shows just everywhere throughout February and March. And when I say everywhere, I mean, these are actual places that they played in February and March of 1968. A bowling alley, ballrooms, dance halls, a renaissance fair, San Quentin prison, something called Clifford's Catering. I have no idea what that is. The Melodyland Theater, which is right across the street from Disneyland in Anaheim. They played at many public parks. The Library Terrace of Columbia University and the next night at Stony Brook, SUNY Stony Brook's gym. They played in Central Park, but they also played at Civic Centers. And they also played one show at a yacht club. So they were just playing pretty much wherever they could. <laughs> and yeah. just a wide variety of different types of venues in this at this time in 1968. They also played a, a few festivals, I think multiple festivals. There was at least one that took place in Washington in, um, I think, early September. They also went back and forth between the coasts two different times in April and May. They were playing in Philly and New York and then went back to San Francisco and then uh, pretty much like the next week back to New York for more shows. In July and August, they canceled all of their shows that were set to be played outside the state of California. Um, It was some in Hawaii and I think some in Arizona and they just decided to stick around the state instead. So by October, they're back in the Bay Area. They're playing, like I said, whether it's Mickey and the Heartbeats or it's the Grateful Dead, they're playing local shows. Okay, so this show starts out, I don't know, so I think that the the version from the archive that I sent you, it starts with a little bit of some, some banter from Bob mm-hmm. when he says, Okay, we're going to do an uh, we're gonna do a elementary dance number now. It's a foxtrot and it's also a lady's choice. Did you get? Did you ever listen to the version where there's more of Jerry talking before that? <laughs> did you find that in your travels? No, I don't think so. So one of the recordings from this show, there is like a there's like a seven minute morning dew as the first song, which is from a different show, I think in 1967. Then Jerry comes on and he says. Everybody. 
cool it. Everything's gonna be all right. We're gonna play here until until uh, until we drop. <laughs> so the crowd is apparently very anxious to get going. They're excited. Yeah. Maybe because they knew that they could be seeing Hendrix at Winterland, and instead they were <laughs> here at the Avalon <laughs> with 400 of their closest friends watching the dead sans Pigpen. Um, so that's that's kind of where we start the show with some banter, and then the band goes into Dark Star. A Dark Star opener. You know it's going to be a weird day. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So before we um, go into this dark star specifically what is your relationship to the song dark star familiar but polite i don't it's not a top 10 dead song for me but it's always a good like a set to close your eyes and enjoy a jam thing it's certainly never crossed my mind as a show opener well i think that probably part of the reason that's the case. And I'm not saying that it was a, a frequent um, show opener. You told me when you were listening to this show that you didn't have a ton of experience listening to late sixties dead. Right. And like 71, 72 is usually about as far back as I went before, you know, diving into this. So I think that dark star was a more common opener around this time. It was actually, they opened at least six shows with it. Um, according to these stats that I'm looking at um, in 1968. So they they would do it with somewhat regularity. I think that there are also a lot of shows in 68 that we know happened, but we don't have the set list for mm-hmm. because, you know, it's, you got to remember, like, this is not 15 or 20 years later when people were going to every single show that the dead played. Like I said, this was just like a local band for a lot of these people in San Francisco, they're just, uh, there's a show at the Avalon tonight. Let's go check it out. Much the same way that you might go to, I don't know, whatever your local venue is. When I look at the stats that I have from Justin Mason's listen to the music play, of course, dark star is actually the most common set one opener that we know of from 68. And I can see why it starts out really softly and nicely and lets them kind of loosen up and jam for a little while get find some space and then it's just a beautiful song and they can really go pretty much anywhere from there although i like the way that they open this show so i guess for me i don't know if dark star would be a you said top 10 for you right would not be a top 10 song for me i don't think it would be i don't know if it would be a top 10 song for me but I do understand the fact that if you were going to take an objective look at the entire Grateful Dead songbook and say which song is the most dead of any of their songs, I think that you'd have a hard time finding one that encapsulates them better than Dark Star. Yeah, it's kind of like their thesis statement if yeah. you write in a paper. I agree with that. I it It just, it does... It's, it just is feels like them more so than any of their other songs. You have these great, deep, complex, weird Bob Hunter lyrics. You have it changing so much throughout the eras. What it sounds like now in this version, I mean, in 68 is completely different from what it would sound like in 72 once you have Keith involved and when they're doing these 25, 30 minute dark stars pretty much with regularity. Mm-hmm. And then in the late 
80s and early 90s with Brent when they have that MIDI going on and Jerry's guitar sounds completely different. It sounds even way drastically different, but they're still playing it then too. And it's also just like a big spacey jam that could be so many different things. So we would be remiss not to talk about it in these terms when it's the first Dark Star we've talked about on this show. What did you think about this one specifically? I like it. I felt like they were getting their spacey jam out of the way. I mean, when we dive into the rest of the show, but it there's a calm before the storm vibe until we get to like the the nine minute mark um, where Phil starts going nuts on the bass in the background. The bass sounds incredible throughout this whole show, and I don't know if that's because of like the mix on the soundboard or because of the the tape was closer to Phil when they were recording or what, but he sounds so good throughout the whole show. And then at the nine minute mark, it really, really picks up into more of a, a rock song. And then at the 12 minute mark, it kind of dives back into the spacey jam and fades out through there. I like, I liked it. I don't dislike dark star just cause it's not in the top 10 for me. But it really did feel like when you listen to the whole show, and we'll talk about it after, but it was like, okay, let's do the Spacey Jam first, and then let's get going hard after that. What you were saying about the way it kind of builds into that nine-minute mark and then like rocks for a while and then kind of subsides a little bit and goes back into that kind of Spacey, more mellow jam, I feel like this song has a lot of different and distinct segments. There are a lot of times where it builds up, even because even in the opening nine minutes that you're talking about where it's, it is softer, you know, one of the reasons is because neither drummer is on a kit at that point. They're both just kind of playing percussion. Yeah. Mickey is playing a, a guero shaker for a while. Billy is playing a shaker, like a, a legitimate shaker, almost sounds like a maraca for a while. And at some point in the middle of the jam, Bill goes to his drum set and gets on and gets in his playing drums for that rocking part in the middle. But then he goes mm-hmm. back to playing percussion at the end and it, when it quiets down a lot. Um, and so I think that that's one thing that kind of ushers us through these different sounds is what is happening in the percussion space. Are they playing drums or are they just playing other percussion instruments? And when they're just playing other percussion instruments, it keeps everything quieter and it, it sounds really good. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, what you were saying about Phil sounding really good throughout the, this song and his bass throughout the show. Same goes for Bob. And I wonder how much more space they are enabled to have without any keys taking up any of the mix. Yeah. And what I wrote down here with Pigpen absent, Phil needed to pick up the slack and he did. And yeah, with I mean, that's a good point. With no keys... Were they just like, let's get weird? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because I feel like no matter what is going on really throughout the eras, you're always going to hear Jerry at the forefront. I mean, yeah, he's the he's the sonic leader of the band and his guitar is always great. Well, it's not always great, but it's always there, (laughs) even in even in down years or down shows. In this one, I mean, yeah, he's he's awesome, but it is kind of interesting to hear the sound around him and what Phil and Bob are doing is really good. It's interesting. The uh, the 68 show that I was the most familiar with before this was the one that was released as Dave's Picks, I think volume, or sorry, Dick's Picks, I think volume 22, which is at Kings Beach Bowl in Lake Tahoe. 
the aforementioned bowling alley that I was talking about. That was eight months before this show. And I re-listened to that around, you know, the recording of this episode. And Bob, he doesn't sound nearly as good. The things he's doing aren't as interesting. It's not as unique. It's more static throughout the show. Whereas here, he's really getting weird with it. And I do wonder if that talk that they had with him of like, pick it up sort of a thing, if maybe that was in his mind and he was trying to do more avant-garde things, especially if the message is coming from Phil to like, you know, you're not with us musically because he is anything but a kind of, you know, traditional bass player. And so I, I don't know. I, I wonder if that might've had something to do with it. Yeah, maybe you were, you were talking earlier about the Beatles being, on top of the world and in everyone's homes and radios at the 14 minute mark, Jerry kind of, I don't know if he's going for it intentionally or not, but he kind of sounds like John Lennon on the vocals, like at near the very, very end of the song. And like the last lyrical verse, I kind of did a double take. I was like, Oh, is he trying to do that? Uh, And it doesn't happen any other point in the show. So I don't know if maybe his, you know, vocal cords are getting warmed up still or what, but he had a, there was a Beatles sound near the end of this dark star. That's cool. Um, I didn't, I didn't notice that certainly big, like huge Beatles fans. The dead were, I mean, if you weren't necessarily aware of that, look no further than all of the Beatles songs that they covered over the years, probably 15 different ones. And especially then if you expand out to the Jerry Garcia band, he also did a lot of Beatles covers and some of them really beautifully. I actually, I love the White Album by the Beatles, and I love the song Dear Prudence. I think I like the Jerry Garcia Band version better in a lot of ways. I mean, it's excellent. So in any case, uh, this Dark Star I thought was a great way to open the show. It really kind of got me into the the mood of 68 Dead, and it sounded cool without the keys. I'm so un- I'm so not used to hearing this song without keys, right. and. Um, I think that the last version of Dark Star that I really like studied carefully and listened to time and time again was from the Listen to the River box set that came out last year, where it was 71, 72, and 73 in St. Louis, so all shows with Keith. And if you haven't heard it, the good old Grateful Dead cast talking about those three shows is fantastic, and they bring a musicologist on to break down what they're doing in Dark Star. And one of the things he's talking about a lot is the keys, actually. And so it was kind of interesting that now hearing this one with without any keys, and it sounds just as good, there's more space because of the lack of keys, and that benefits this song a lot. The next song they play is St. Stephen, and the transition between Dark Star and St. Stephen, the first time I was listening to it, I audibly said, Jesus Christ, <laughs> when it happened, <laughs> because they just drop into it so, so well and so smoothly. It's jarring to go from the quiet end of Dark Star into um, the beginning of St. Stephen in an awesome way.
this is forget like of this era saint stephen is one of my favorite grateful dead songs i love this song and um this is a just a tight good version of saint stephen yeah it is it's ripping like the tone on the guitar and the the rock version of saint stephen that they're dropping here is um is fantastic and in this this song in the version that you sent me is how you can really hear how intimate the venue is you can hear people in the audience talking during the lulls that the band even in a three-minute version of saint stephen they're still like stopping and pausing and going into a lull before they rip back into it with like jerry attacking the guitar yeah the best the transition was fantastic and i thought bob sounded really good on the transition the word that i wrote down to describe this song was whiplash it was like go stop go stop okay go 100 miles an hour and then cut it at the three minute mark like they were just on and off and on and off and on and off and not off in a bad way like off as in like they literally stopped playing and let the crowd talk to him for two seconds and then they ripped back into it yeah i noticed that too i i wrote down um the crowd cheers before lady fingers that that part of the song and it's because it sounds so dramatic with these stops with the no with the pauses that they're taking pauses, throughout the yeah. song and I just was thinking to myself, if it sounds this dramatic 54 years later in my car, I can't imagine what it would feel like being in, in the barn and they're playing it. And this song is already a really dramatic one. I mean, in the early days of the dead, especially in the early seventies, when they put this song on the shelf for five years, this was a song that you'd hear people screaming for all the time. It'd be like, say it's Steven. It was kind of their free bird. There's one day, uh, one Dick's picks where you hear someone yell that and Phil goes, we don't play that anymore. We're, there are songs that we used to play with two drummers that we don't anymore, and so we, so we don't play that. And I think that the band got frustrated by that, that people were always yelling for this song. But I can see why the fans did when I hear a version like this, where, like you said, it's it's like four minutes long, and they still find space and time to pause and build the drama in, an, in a really good way. I mean... Yeah, I love this version. The the snare drums, like with a marching band sound that's coming from them, uh, is great. It's perfect to kind of keep this song just moving along, and it's just on point throughout the song. The drummers are really locked in with one another in this show, throughout the entire show. And the other thing I would say is, in addition to the crowd reaction and the drums, the other thing that stood out was, even in these short, little, tight, 15-second solos that Jerry's ripping off, He's just soaring on the guitar. I mean, he sounds fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other thing about this version of St. Stephen, common for the era, but it was retired by 1970, I think for good, was the William Tell Bridge at the end of the song that leads us into the 11. Mm-hmm. That gives it, this song already has kind of a Renaissance fair vibe to it. And then with that, it's like even more so. But I really like it a lot. Uh, I haven't listened to many St. Stephen's from this era in a while. I went through a big St. Stephen phase like a year and a half ago where I listened to like every version that I could find. And I'd kind of forgotten about the William Tell Bridge, to be honest. And so it was like having a family member come back in to my life for a minute. I was like, oh yeah, I forgot that they did this. This this kind of rules. <laughs> um, had you heard that before? 
the William Tell part? Yeah, I, I have. Um, and I listened um, to other 68 shows to like, you know, prepare for this one too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like it. I don't know why they, I mean, do you know why they retired that little minute long ditty? They just didn't play the song that often. And so I wonder if maybe it's just one of those things where by the time they brought it back, they wanted to maybe jam it out a little bit more in a way that led to them retiring that William Tell bridge that they put in in this era. I don't know. From here, from St. Stephen, so like you said, Dark Star. Starts out spacey, you know, pretty vibey. Mm -hmm. Then into a powerful, tight St. Stephen. And then into a song that is only of this era, uh, The Eleven. Man, (laughs) this song. (laughs) This is like nine minutes of fury. They are just going for it. This song is the first note that I wrote. Well, the the first bullet on my page, actually the last note that I wrote is, this version is ripping from the first second to pretty much the last. They do not let up for like eight and a half minutes. They are just killing it with this song. Yeah, and what I enjoyed the most, they're having as much fun playing this as we are listening. Because at like the nine-ish minute mark, you can literally hear Bob and Jerry, like after one of them does something cool, they're screaming like, yeah, to each other on the stage. Like you can hear that. They're like yelling back and forth to each other because they're just having a blast as they're crushing it. And it's as fun for them to play it as it is for us to listen to. Yeah, I... I agree that you can hear it in St. Stephen too, because I mean, they did this in most versions, but the, one of the parts when they take a pause, you can hear Bob do that like little yip scream. And (laughs) um, he does it twice in this version of St. Stephen, because I think they're just having a ball. They sound great. Um, And they're just kind of letting it all hang out. I mean, as is, as is often true of this era of the Grateful Dead, when people talk about the primal dead and Jim and Marilyn said warts and all, um, they're just they're just letting it ride and it it does sound awesome i think that this version of the 11 i mean it's the most upvoted version on heady version and by a large margin it has 40 percent more upvotes than the next competitor which is impressive because they played the song a hundred times between in the late 60s like it's not like there are only 10 versions of it there are a lot and i i think one of the reasons is honestly the drummers again they are on it they they are locked together when they need to be like it almost sounds like one drummer like one really loud awesome drummer for a lot of the show or for a lot of the song rather but then they diverge when they need to or when they want to and are doing really different things with their fills that makes the sound so like full you have i think it's mickey based on the sound that based on the side of my head headphones or whatever that it's coming through but he's doing a lot on the cymbals and Billy is doing more on the toms. And so it has like a very full low to high sound throughout the entire song. But man, this is a good version. I mean, they're just, they're just on fire for this song. Yeah. And I mean, Jerry is just doing things on on the guitar that are like nineties guitar style, like riffs and solos that he's doing way, way back in 68. And it's, it's really, really good. And then on the drums point, I wrote down that um, at the 10 minute mark, uh, it took me that long in the song to realize how great the drums were. But at the 10 minute mark, like the snare fills in response to what Jerry was doing on the on the guitar, 
how those come through are awesome at the end. This song, like I said, it, when I said ripping from the first second to pretty much the last, there's like three seconds at the end where they kind of start to ease down and ratchet things down as they go into the set one closer. Only a four song first set, Death Don't Have No Mercy. <sighs> Man. I mean, Man. the drama you, that I was talking You thought talk- the 11 was good? <laughs> like, this is... The, the drama that I was talking about in St. Stephen, that, like, this is a... I mean, it just sounds dramatic. Talk about drama. I mean, this is a great dramatic set closer for a really good dramatic set one. They are so patient with this song. It takes, like, three minutes of just, like, very, like, quiet jamming and Jerry crooning pretty much crooning good word yeah and and then at the three minute mark the guitars jerry specifically just take it to another level completely i mean such a good version There was like a, Jerry was putting his soul in, through the mic in this version. I mean, just, whew. And I I had to check after hearing it. This is the second best version on Heady version. And I would probably agree with that. I mean, just an all-time version of Death Don't Have No Mercy. I agree. Top shelf version. The, the most upvoted one is the one from Live Dead. I mean, that's an awesome version of this song, and it's going to be hard to unseat when there are people that have been listening to it for 50 years. <laughs> and so, uh, and a good, you know, a good official release quality of that version. But yeah, I mean, Jerry's vocals, it's like he's trying to rip your heart out of your chest the way that he's singing this song. I, I really love this song. We heard it live in at the Dead & Company Raleigh show last summer, right. in 2021. And mm-hmm. it I must say, it sounds really good with Bob singing it now in his 70s. There's like, this might sound messed up. There's like some urgency to it, given that he's much closer to death than Jerry was in 1968. But I don't know, Jerry, he, he's talked, he talked a lot about the car crash that he was in when he was young, where he was literally thrown through the windshield of his car and how like that was the moment his life started a car crash at 80 miles per hour that he survived somehow. And, um, I do think that he like the whole death don't have no mercy lyric. It's something that it sounds like he's singing about through experience. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he, he literally was, like I said, there's that car crash. His dad died in front of him when he was a little kid. Um, he was no stranger to death at this point in his life. And I think it gives it some, there's a lot about the Grateful Dead's live performances that just feels honest. And I think that's something that people love about the Grateful Dead. And this song is a good example of that. It doesn't sound like he's singing about something that he doesn't know about. It sounds like he's, 
he's really singing it from his heart. Yeah. This song was um, a, a rarity, really. I mean, it was not played that many times uh, over the years. 50 total versions in their 2,400 songs. It was retired in 1970 and then not brought back for 1,300 shows until 929.89 at the Shoreline Amphitheater. All right, so like I said, that's all for set one. Um, you know, not too uncommon of this time that there would be set lists that were only a few songs long. And like I said, the Avalon had a tight curfew. It's in a multi-purpose building, so there were other people who were in, who were in the building that probably wanted it to not be super loud until two in the morning. But what do you think about this set one? Yeah, I, we s- start slow and end slow, and you know the. 30 minutes in between uh the 25 minutes in between the 25 minutes in between are just ripping hot like the end of dark star is great the saints saint stephen is great all of the 11 is wonderful and then you ride down into this soulful death don't have no mercy before you go take a break yeah i'm trying to do the math quick in my head and it's like it's about a 40 minute first set so there was there was enough that like yes it is only four songs but there was enough there to to keep the people happy for for a little while. I would certainly say so. I was trying to put myself in the shoes of someone who was at this concert and I mean I would have I would have been tired from like headbanging and like going nuts for that 11 for 10 and a half minutes. Well, especially after Jerry advised you to please let go of your body before the show started. I mean, you'd just be letting it, letting it fly. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I love this set. I can see why Jim and Marilyn put up this show as like, if you're going to do 68 dead, this is the one it's fantastic. There are no missteps. The song choice is awesome. I love that we have the 11 into death. Don't have no mercy. It really grounds you in the era that you're listening to, to hear those two songs back to back. And then the first two songs, Dark Star and St. Stephen, I mean, that's exactly, those are the two songs I would have wanted to hear from this era. So, oh man, I loved that set. I have gone back and listened to this whole show a ton of times since we were given our assignment by Jim and Marilyn. <laughs> and I've listened to this first set specifically, like, a lot of times because I just think it's fantastic. I feel like the audience's head must have been spinning afterward, kind of like you're saying. I don't even know what they could have been expecting going into set two after a set like that. Um, but their heads were going to be spinning more before the night was over. <laughs> set two starts with a cryptical envelopment sandwich or the other one sandwich, depending on which way you're looking at it. Cryptical into the other one back into a cryptical uh, reprise. So how do you want to how do you want to break this up? I feel like the first cryptical we should talk about with the other one. We should talk about them together. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, that's fine. I, th- there's really not much. To, the first one is only what a minute and a half long. Yeah, look. pretty yeah. typical for this era. Like a minute. Well, and it, the the audio does cut in like partway through, so it might have been a little bit longer, but I don't think we miss much. And I mean, just and then the version that. I'm looking at on the internet archive. There's an 11 second like drums <laughs> partitioned out as a separate song, but I think it's all part of the like the the first cryptical. I think it's part of the I other the... one. Yeah. I, so oh, okay. that that kind of made me laugh. I 
the the one that I originally listened to, there's no drum section, and then I clicked on a different one, and yeah, there's this 11 second drums, and I was like, <laughs> why? Who would cut it out why? like that? <laughs> Especially when the beginning of the other one is always that, like it's it's very clearly in my mind part of the other one. <laughs> But I do agree. Yeah. I mean, the drums are strong. That was the that was the only note I wrote down. I was like, the drums are strong in this, you know, ninety second blip. And then not even ninety, just eleven the seconds. One. The drums is eleven seconds long in between the cryptical and the other one. No, I know. Like even in the cryptical too. Like oh. in that little in that little block, the drums are strong, and then the drums are really strong, and then we're into the other one. Yeah. Um. So the the cryptical. If you go going back to that. Uh, Dick's picks that I was talking about that song is just I think it's t- in la- it's labeled that's it for the other one and cryptical envelopment or something like that and so it's like the full suite rather than breaking it up song by song or really breaking it up <laughs> cryptical drums the other one um, Dick's picks eight you have cryptical drums the other one cryptical but the drums in that is like four minutes long so like that's warranted i think that you would have drums partitioned off the cryptical opening i do think is really nice it doesn't lose anything in my mind for the lack of keys jerry's singing is really great and one thing that i wrote down is that his effort is clear and i mean that in a positive way like you can tell he's making an effort to sound really nice in the way he's singing and maybe that's kind of some of what you were picking up on in the dark star that he's really making an effort to sing just i don't know sweetly both both of these songs, the the lyrics and the the melody, benefits from that. I think, you know, it's not like a screamer of a song. It's like a you know, a, it's more on the ballad side, um, and so I think that it it works his his lead in. And then you get into the other one. So, charge into the other one. My goodness. <laughs> Yeah, maybe that's why the drums is separated off. The charge in, you know. Uh, yeah, maybe. The this is another one where it's just like these drummers are so freaking locked in right now. <laughs> I mean, it's just a two drummer showcase from pretty much beginning to end. The first minute they're doing the exact same thing. You can't even tell that it's two drummers. It's like, and it's not like it's a just like a pretty classic like you know basic drum beat that they would teach you i mean it is a it is a four count but it's more complicated than that the way that they're playing it version of this song yes the at about the two minute mark after after the drums impress you there there's like a duel is not the right word there's like a back and forth with jerry and phil like to see who can impress you more at the two minute mark like jerry is ripping it and then phil is just like right there throwing it back at him and i think that was phil 
being like, hey, no pig pen, no problem. <laughs> like I, I'll take it. Don't worry. It's it's. I wrote that same almost same timestamp down at two forty five. The vocals begin and Jerry is still smoking on the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> and then Phil joins into the fun with his part of the harmonization, and he's almost like screaming when he's singing. Um, and so I think that that energy that's that's charging through him as he and Jerry kind of play off each other is pretty evident in the way that they're both singing too behind Bobby's lead vocals. Yeah. I just, I'm, and I mean, after that, after the two minute mark and the three minute mark, at the 540 marker, I, I mean, come on. Phil is like, he's not letting up. And th- that's like when he walks it up to the, the high notes on the bass and he's just on this charge. I have three different notes that I, that the word charge or charging is a part of. And that, I guess that's the word for this song. Like they are just going full throttle throttle on this other one yeah they are i one of one of my notes is jerry is hot <laughs> capitalized h-o-o-o-o-o-t um i mean this is a scorching showcase for him as much as it is a showcase for the drummers and then uh phil like you said he's doing awesome stuff behind really holding it down and and like charging to use your word and Bob is just dancing all around him. I mean, his yeah. his rhythm in this song is excellent. What he's doing, mm-hmm. what he's doing here compared to what he's doing in the other one that's on Dick's Picks Twenty Two that I was just referencing is day and night. Like, listen to that version and listen to this version. That version is pretty rote. He's not doing anything too complex. He's not changing up what he's doing that much throughout the song. I mean, it it doesn't sound bad, but then this one he's just all over the place. What he's doing at the two-minute mark sounds completely different from what he's doing at the seven-minute mark. And they both work. It works in both cases really well. But it's just great. And I mean, I think that that's when Bob is at his best. And it's something that we talked about in the first show we talked about where, like, I mean, for my money, he's one of the one of the best rhythm guitarists ever. And it's because he doesn't just stay with the same stuff. He changes it up and does more complicated things on the rhythm than just, like, being kind of a stable presence like that was never his thing and it's interesting you can there one of the things in that book I was talking about earlier so many roads that uh, a quote from him was that a lot of people think that Bob took guitar lessons from Jerry Um, that's like a kind of a common story I guess but he never did and one of the reasons why Bob said is because he knew pretty much from the beginning that if he was going to be in a band with Jerry, he was going to have to go his own way because he was never going to be able to do what Jerry was doing. And so he needed to like find his own lane. And he, I mean, he found it in this song because what he's doing sounds great. So, you know, we've now called out everyone in the band for doing great things throughout this song. A couple more notes from me. The last quarter of the song, Mickey's got that cowbell back out. Um, like he did in 77. It works. Sounds good. And, mm-hmm. and the other thing is a little ad lib from Bob. I don't know if you caught this. The bus came by and I got on. That's where it all began. And then he says, read about it. Did you catch that? Oh, no, I didn't catch that. <laughs> so I was trying to figure out what the hell he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> the bus came by and I got on. That's where it all began. Read about it. And I think the best I can tell, it's a reference to Tom Wolfe's The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, which is a book that was, I mean, an infamous book in American literary history and, you know, hippie history. 
that was released at the end of August 1968 describing the acid tests and includes a lot about the Grateful Dead's involvement in the acid tests. So hmm. I think that that's what he's talking about when he says read about it. Kind of cool. And also, I mean, going back to his age, the fact that as a 20-year-old, there's already like a book of national acclaim that has been released that talks about something that he was doing in the culture is pretty crazy. That's Yeah, like he's in the, the, the American zeitgeist, right, yeah. for one reason or another already. Yeah, crazy. So this, this the other one was 15th on Hetty Version. You know, it's impressive because they played a, a million, the other ones, over the years. And I think that's deserved. Do you think that's too high, too low, just about right? Maybe, maybe a little too low, but I mean, I think it's, it's, it's probably properly rated. I mean, it's a very raw coming around, like, you know, they're not, they don't have Donna, like, you know, anchoring them with a professional singing voice to harmonize that. They're just screaming it into the mics and, uh, and with no, no keys, maybe, I, I, I think it's probably maybe a little too low, but it's fine. So they played 650 versions of the other one. <laughs> In that context, does it now seem just about right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because when, I, when yeah. I heard that, I was like, when, when I saw that, I was like, man, that's low. And then I saw that they played 650 versions and I was like, okay, well, who am I to say that there aren't 14 better <laughs> versions of the yeah. 600? <laughs> yeah. Um is one of the better versions the um, one from February 78 that we listened to? I'm sure. Oh. How could it not be? I don't know that for yeah. a fact, but I mean, if you want to look it up, I'll, yeah, I'll check more, it out. Really. More than welcome because I would have to think it is. That might even be the top version, to be honest. Wow. And when you go on, this is a callback from 20 minutes ago when you go on heady version the first song that like you can click on is dark star yeah to talk about like you know songs that you define the grateful dead february 5th of the unidome is one one two three four five seven eight sorry eight one two three four five six seven eighth top version is harper college at the local binghamton new york yeah now binghamton university Um, yes yeah, that makes sense. That version is, I mean, fantastically good. And I mean, yeah, I mean, that we just named three awesome versions of this song. They're all just completely different, whether you go to Harper College or the Unidome or this one. All great, all for different reasons, and um, all spread out by a number of years. So after the other one, they go back into Cryptical Envelopment for the, for the reprise. <sighs> I keep like sighing about these songs because it feels like they're just like each one better than the last. This is uh, a this cryptical monster. Another one where it's like, this is of the era. They didn't play this song forever. Um, but as far as cryptical other one sandwiches go, I don't think there's ever been, in my opinion, and I've listened to a number of these, these versions. I don't think there's ever been a better transition from the other one back to the reprise. It is so good and smooth. It sounds really great. The masses agree this is a top five version of Cryptical Envelopment on Heady version. Um, so, you know, the 
people loved it. What did you think? We talked about the transition from Dark Star to St. Stephen making you exclaim out loud. The transition from the other one back into Cryptical. I I said, I was like, whoa. And like I didn't know the song had changed. And that like that was a fantastic transition. And there is, you know, like you said, it's a ballad. We lull down a little bit until we don't, until like 220 and Jerry hits him with one more, like, you know, he had to die. And they rip into a monster cryptical, like a breakneck jam at that point in the song. The transition was great. And then they just run into it. Yeah. I think that the lack of keys actually helps with the transition because usually the keys kind of bridge the gap between these two songs in a way. Without the keys, it is like near silence for the first few seconds. And so that's probably why you were like, oh, I didn't even realize they changed it because it just sounds like they like drop off with the other one and then are starting to get back into it. But instead they're mm-hmm. off and running with Cripsicle. The minim- the minimalist sound of the first few minutes is what I think you're discussing a little bit when you say that like it's like quiet in the beginning. But it's it's great because <laughs> with how hot they're playing, they just like can't hold themselves back. It's like, okay, well, we might be playing quietly for a little while, but um <laughs> I the the note that I have is back into Heatersville before long. They're just <laughs> they're just right back at it. I love the symbols on this song. In kind of the sort of the sort of the sort of gentle ending segment, it just it makes for a really nice transition back out of this cryptical other one segment and into the next song. But man, hearing this song and listening to it like a, a million times in the last week, it makes me wish kind of that they'd involved this song more over the years. I was looking into how often they played it and. They only played this song once with Donna on stage and then they retired it for more than 800 shows before they brought it back very briefly in 1985. And then I think that they played it over like a two or three week span in 85 and then it was gone again for the last decade of their playing. Wow. Kind of a shame, isn't it? I mean, this song and the other one go so well together. Yeah. They, you've got this great material and yeah like you were talking about at the beginning you come out with a hundred more songs in the next yeah seven eight years so you have more material to pull from but you don't you didn't have to you didn't have to retire it just didn't have to be in the starting lineup every time like it could have run out there once every other week in the 80s you know yeah especially with the their proclivity and their desire from the early days to go one singer then the next then the next Mm-hmm. not like super rigidly all the time, but generally, I mean, you can hear on uh, again, back to the good old grateful dead cast. One of the interviews with Bob around the time they were playing at the Fox theater in 72, he was talking about that. Like we have three singers. And so we usually do one singer, then the next, then the next and keep it rotating. And they kept doing that throughout the years. But this, this little suite is perfect for that. You have Jerry into Bob back into Jerry and kind of satisfies that structure I don't know. I, I mean, I love their music in later years too, but I, it did make me a little bit sad. I kind of, I would have liked to see how the song developed in the late seventies if they would have played it at that point and how it would have worked with Donna. Maybe that's why they didn't because 
there's not really anything for Donna to do in this song. I mean, she yeah. she did a lot in the other one and added to that song. So, I don't know. Any more thoughts on Cryptical and the other one before we get into the, the kind of ending segment of the show? Just ripping. It really was. <laughs> I mean, it's just an excellent segment of the show. And it, it keeps it keeps going with more good stuff. New Potato Caboose is the song they play after this. I, based on our slightly shared notes before this show, I think you and I might have different thoughts about this song. So what did you think? Well, this was new for me. I don't think I had ever heard this song before. And so I went into it with with young ears. <laughs> and I, at first I was like, okay, they just needed a little, little reprieve from the hot other one cryptical jam before that. And then... At the two fifteen mark, this like long crash symbol waves over you, and we're jamming. And there's a dark, heavy jam at the four twenty mark. And I was a I was a fan. This song was dark yet optimistic. I thought, and I liked that. So I I think I think it was the first time I'd ever heard this song, and I was a I gave it a thumbs up. Nice. Well, I, I, it's not like I give it a thumbs down, and I'm not. A, I haven't heard a ton of versions of this song either. They basically only played it in '68 and '69, one time in '67, but for the most part, it's a '68 '69 joint. It's not even a problem with the song for me. It's just I don't think there was anything that they could have done after that cryptical sandwich that would have really satisfied me. <laughs> to be honest, it, it's like a comedian using their closing bit 30 minutes into the show. It's like, well, now where do you go? And I, I do think that this song was good. Um, and I, I'm not enough of a new potato head to know if it's like the best version, although it is a top three version on heady version. Well, yeah, it's yeah. number three. <laughs> One person, <laughs> Urbano Clementine, shout out to you, Clementine, said, and I quote, this version turned me into a caboose fiend. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, at least one person was absolutely, his life was changed by this new potato caboose. For me, it wasn't quite so much. I mean, it sounds good. I just don't think it's particularly memorable in the context of the music that comes before it. So, you know, it's, it's fine and I don't dislike it. It's just, it's just tough to beat the, the, the preceding music. I think that's a good point about the, you know, they could have put anything there and it would have been a letdown, but I... I wasn't let down. I was I was liking it. The song that I wish they would have played, and they couldn't have because it's a Pigpen song, but I would have loved to hear an Alligator, another late 60s song mm-hmm. coming out of that. But what can you do? Beggars can't be choosers. I, it's still a great... It's still a great set. After this song, we don't have any more singing for the rest of the show. The rest of the set list is jam, drums, jam, feedback. And um, so starting with the first chunk the jam into drums part it's interesting the intro jam like the jam part reminded me of tommy era music by the who um i don't know how else to describe that but if you listen to like tommy's holiday camp and other songs from tommy the what they're the way that they're playing on this reminded me of tommy tommy hadn't come out yet so it's not like they were you know biting their style or anything Although they had played together pretty recently, The Who and uh, The Dead at Monterey Pop. But yeah, that's kind of what it reminded me of, the sound. And it makes sense because without the 
without the keys, this sound is much more similar to the Who with the guitar, bass, and drums than it would be with keys. Um, and then at one point in the middle of this, it it almost in the middle of this jam, it almost like turns into a polka for a little bit. And then it takes like a deeper turn into a darker jam before then it kicks into drums. So, I've, I mean, it was a good jam, an interesting one, and the style really kind of bended and changed throughout the jam. Yeah, and then into a, a quick, tight, 90-second drums, which was pleasant to listen to, and I think warranted its own track, unlike the 11-second um, quickie before. And then back into a, a different jam, jam part two. What is it? What is it called in the version you're looking at? It's just called Jam and Jam. Yeah, Sam. It's it's me. weird. It okay. almost imitates the cryptical other one thing where like That's the first I, jam is like two minutes long. Then you have a minute 30 second drum interlude and then a seven minute, like a longer jam that comes afterward. What did you think about the longer jam, the seven minute jam track? I liked it better. I liked that the bass kind of roared in. Um, and what I wrote down comparing it in my head to the 77 show we listened to last time. We have eschewed the Indian bead string of notes for the blend of barbed wire edge and rich velvety smoothness. <laughs> barbed wire edge. I like that. Is that, do you think more Jerry's or Bob's guitar that is sounding kind of sharp or is it the drummers? I think it's Jerry's actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had done it a couple times. He did it in St. Stephen. He did it in, well, he did it throughout the entire 11. And I think it was just a, a raw, rocky show. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to put that sound on. And I think that's probably also more of the time. Yeah. Too. I agree. I, there, there are times when he's intentionally putting feedback on his guitar sound, and it sounds it sounds cool. It definitely is of the era. Um, I know that that's something that Hendrix did that always sounded cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote down that this jam feels a bit more frenetic than a lot of the jamming that came before it throughout the show. And sometimes it's hard to pin down, like, okay, well, what's the difference between frenetic and just powerful? Sometimes it can be a fine line. But I felt like parts of this felt a little bit more rushed than like the jamming on the other one into Cryptical, for example. And so I think that's where like the term frenetic comes into my mind where it's like, it's like breathless almost the way that they're playing. Not a bad thing, really, you know, high energy and, you know, getting the people moving and dancing and feeling in a cool way. It just sounds different than a lot of what kind of came beforehand. curious why they went with a like all jam no singing ending you know for the last 
20 minutes it looks like just about of the show um yeah i i liked it i felt like this is where your review of uh caboose i think i would plug that in here like after that whole ripping show i think anything here a little bit of a not a letdown but like you know just going into just this jamming out playing i don't think it was like the best ending it's interesting i totally understand what you're saying because you can so i'm looking at other set lists from around this time period like for example this one from 11 this is probably more what you would be looking for from an ending of the set list so at the end you have cryptical other one cryptical other one jam new potato and then and we bid you good night so Ooh, you've got a lot of like space to freeform it up, but then you bring it back in, like you were saying with new potato and then, and we bid you good night at the end. Whereas this one, they're just like, Nope, we're just, we're ending you on a jam. Here is mm-hmm. my defense of it. This is a hometown show. You know, they're, they're just like feeling themselves and they're feeling it out. These are audiences that have probably seen them 10, 15, maybe more times this year. And in the in the moment, they were struck by the idea or the feeling to just end just by playing and not not singing. And I don't know; it's kind of cool to me. I like that a lot of a lot of shows I think from this era ended with this last track, feedback. To to quote <laughs> Jim and Maryland yet again, there's no right or wrong answer here. These are just different ways of trying to wrap your brain around an impossible puzzle. I think is what he said. Um, but for me. I'm not mad at it. It's different from a lot of Grateful Dead shows I've heard, and I'm I'm okay with that. Bringing back up Jim and Maryland, the the wart of this show I think would be here, like they're just feeling it out, they're just going for it, um, and that's not it's not bad. It's something new and different. This is probably more similar to what they might have been doing at the acid tests than the beginning part. You know, it's just very free form and whatever they feel like playing without the you know, need to get on the mics and provide new vocals for the feedback track, which is also seven minutes long. My only note is ladies and gentlemen, the psychedelic grateful dead, raw, chaotic, scary, sometimes weird. Awesome. (laughs) I I really like this track a lot. I think that as far as like spacey jams go, they just go in a lot of different directions here and it sounds cool. Listening to it with, um, in my car on the drive to work, I don't think was as satisfying as listening to it in bed with headphones in <laughs> and just kind of letting the the sounds kind of hit me. Yeah, I don't think this would have sounded as good in the car. Um, it's like weirdly catchy in the middle. I don't know exactly what point in the middle. Um, that was really like the one, the one show, the one note I wrote down. Um, you wouldn't expect a feedback track to be catchy. No. Um, but yeah, they, they kind of find a way to do it. And to bring back the allegation that Jimi Hendrix was in the barn, I think the, the people who claim to have seen him that night, even though we know he wasn't there, say that he comes on at the four minute mark of feedback. And like, that's where he made his appearance. It would, I guess, make sense if he was to come on, he was going to come on for a jam and then a feedback, but, um, We've dispelled that rumor. That is a classic Mandela effect. 
I, which I, I know you don't believe in, but that would make sense that like there could be people who were there on the 12th and the 13th and they saw him there on the 13th because he was there and then heard the story about how he was supposed to jam with the Grateful Dead and then Mandela affected themselves into thinking that he was actually there on the 12th. The word is misremembered. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Um, anything else about the, the set list before we start to bring this thing home? No. no. All right. So overall, really good show. I'm glad that we listened to it. I'm glad that we got to talk about it. It's cool to get into this very different era of the Grateful Dead. And I'm glad that you got to kind of experience some different music than what you had been familiar with. Your kind of sweet spot. I think that the Grateful Dead are an interesting band in a lot of ways. Obviously, we believe that <laughs> given what we're doing right now. But what's interesting to me is... They're perhaps more than any other band associated with the counterculture movement of the late 60s in the United States. I think that when people in the general public think of the Grateful Dead, they think of them as this kind of 60s psych Yeah, like the, the hippie folk rock band, I think is what they think of. And this show... I'm not, not even the folk rock. Take a step back for a second. I'm talking about people who have never heard the Grateful Dead. Because even if you've never listened to the Grateful Dead, you know who they are, right? So I'm thinking about someone like one of my, I don't know, like one of, maybe one of my college professors or one of my aunts and uncles who they knew, or, or my grandma, actually, who's 80 years old. She was probably not too tuned in to what was going on musically in the late 60s. She had four kids and was in her 30s. You know, she wasn't pr- pretty, I don't think she would have been like locked in. She might have heard the Grateful Dead from her kids playing their records and not even known that it was them. But when her mind's eye wanders to the Grateful Dead, I think that she probably thinks of that like late 60s counterculture mm-hmm. summer of love vibe without even thinking about what their music sounds like. Uh, I think that that's probably the first picture that comes to her mind. Yeah. You know? Okay. What you're saying is I think spot on for people who like know a little bit about their music. They probably think of Working Man's Dead and American Beauty as like exactly like you're saying, like this hippie folk rock type of thing. When deadheads think about the Grateful Dead, like you or I, we probably think of their mm-hmm. prime as the 70s. Yeah. That's when they were killing it on the road. That's when we have all this great live music. We have, you know, Europe 72 and May 77 and these shows from 78 that we love. And then at, you know, in the beginning of the decade, you have great shows with Pigpen. At the very end, you have some early ones with Brent. Like the 70s is really the decade that I think of with the Grateful Dead in a lot of ways. And so it's interesting that you hadn't heard many shows from the 60s, but it's very understandable for the reason that, number one, the 70s is their kind of touring prime. But number two, it's harder to find good tapes and good show recommendations from this time because it was so long ago. Um, You know, relatively speaking, it's not that long ago, but it was in the very early days of their career. So it was, I'm glad that we got to talk about this and shout out once again to Jim in Maryland for uh, recommending the song. I'm excited to listen to the next one, 42369. And that's a very different vibe than this. I mean, this show, if you just include the jam section at the end, has what, eight songs on the entire thing? And the next one has like <laughs> 30. <laughs> so we're, we're really in for it with... Uh, with the next show. And it might just be the difference between what they were playing on the road at this time versus what they were playing in their Mm -hmm. own backyard in San Fran. 
hit me with your with your last thoughts, your last questions. What do you got? Well, to keep the Clementine's theme, I thought that the reviewer Clementine's Caboose summed it up best for me. And she said, quote, a strong contender for the best of the year. This is an essential show that belongs in every collection. Seriously, whether you're a Primal Dead fan or not, you need, all caps, need this show. The Dark Star is gorgeous and well jammed. The Eleven and the That's It for the Other One's Suite are pretty much peerless in 68. And Phil's 13's jam style solo during New Potato is absolutely astonishing. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know what that means at the end. I don't know what that means, but I just thought that that was incredible. <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, that's that's great. I completely agree. Very well said and kind of well wrapped up by, what did you say? Clementine Caboose? Clementine's Caboose. What the hell are the odds that we have Urbano Clementine, a caboose <laughs> fiend because of this show, and then we have another Clementine caboose. I, I almost interrupted you when you brought that up. I was almost like, all right, time out. you got to look at this. But I mean, look, I, I wrote down the review from the website. I don't know how I can do this. You can see it. But it's Clementine's Caboose, that and that crazy. review is from back in 2010. Wow. What, what website did you find that on? Uh, that's on the internetarchive.org that you sent me. That's just like one of the wow. comments. <laughs> Wow, I, I, now I wonder if it's the same person. Yeah, I guess it could their, be. Their, their, yeah, their name on Hetty Version is Urbano Clementine, and their name on—I mean, I don't know. We we might really be onto something if, if we were if we were locked in enough. But, you know, you and I are like Billy and Mickey. We're just locked in, both finding Clementine cabooses yeah. on, uh, when it comes to this oh show. Oh God. Um, yeah, and then the question I have for you: Give me your. What's getting dragged onto the playlist? What are you torn between? Maybe what's the honorable mention getting left off? It's not being dragged on. It's being warmly embraced and and lovingly carried onto my playlist. It's the 11. Give me the 11. Unbelievable version. Again, like locks you into the era that you're in to have the 11. What songs am I am I like tempted or I guess is it hard for me to leave off what was fighting the, for second place i guess then it sounds like the that's it for the other one sweet with cryptical envelopment very very hard to leave off i'm sad to not have it on my playlist but if i can only take one i'm taking the 11 and that is no shade to the death don't have no mercy that's no shade to literally every other song on this album which like agreeing with with our friend clementine i do think it's essential listening and I would be, I'd love, I'd be thrilled to have any of these songs on my playlist. But with the Dark Star and Saint Stephen, there are just other versions that I like better, and so I wouldn't have those. And if it's between those three as my main contenders, Death Don't Have No Mercy, The Eleven, and um, That's It for the other one, that that sweet, I'm going with The Eleven. It's it's ripping, it's fast, and I I just love it. What about you? This is a working man's pod historic moment that this is the first time we have agreed on a song wow. making it onto the playlist yeah that, that this 11 is just awesome and then i i also had the cryptical envelopment as my number two and death don't have no mercy getting a well-deserved honorable mention man what a good show 
thank you again, Jim and Maryland. I don't know if you're listening to this. Based on our brief conversation, I'm not sure if he's a big podcast guy. Um, and that's totally okay. But I, we're still indebted to him for sending us this link. A couple other people we're indebted to to give shout outs. Um, again, Long Strange Putt. Go follow him on Instagram. He made our great artwork. Um, I don't know who else. Any other shout outs you want to give before we hit the road and go start listening to April 23rd, 1969, Live at the Ark for our episode four? No, just the, the Clementines pair to provide <laughs> us with such... Um, succinct and good uh, reviews of what we were looking for and now just follow us on working man's pod on twitter working man's underscore very important underscore pod on instagram and get in touch at uh working man's pod at gmail.com jim from maryland's not the only one not the only one that we are taking uh show advice from so if you have a show that you love that you don't think anyone else knows about let us know and we'll talk about it. Yeah. Or even if it's one that everyone knows about, but you're like, look, this is a great show and I want you to talk about it. Let us know. We will find a way to do it. We just took one from at grateful seconds on Twitter uh, this week. Great Twitter follow. If you don't follow him already or, or her already, I'm, I guess I'm not sure. Um, but that this person was talking about their first show being one of my personal favorite grateful dead moments is when they brought back St. Stephen in 1976 after putting it away for five years. Um, I, I've always loved that. And that happened to be their first show. So we saw that and we're like, this is a great excuse to talk about this show someday. Yeah. So that is now on our list of shows to discuss in the not so distant future. So yeah, like, like Dave was saying, um, if you have one that you'd like us to talk about, let us know uh, shout out to uncle Kyle. Cause he gets a shout out every episode. And I think on that note, we will bid you good night. Good night. Good night. All I bid you good night. Good night. Good night. All I bid you good night. Good night. Good night.